Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of the Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit guypowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the newly released book, The Only Witness, A History of the Shroud of Turin. It is a historical fiction tracing a possible yet plausible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we're speaking with Robert Starling. He is a Shroud researcher and has a very interesting connection to the Shroud. With that, let me introduce Robert. Robert attended Georgia Tech in Atlanta for two years on academic scholarship, majoring first in textile chemistry and then in textile management. He received a call to serve in California and Arizona as a Spanish-speaking missionary in the West Spanish American Mission. Afterwards, he attended Brigham Young University for three years on another academic scholarship. He majored in communications with an emphasis in broadcasting and produced the first student film done at BYU for class credit. Robert had a successful career as a writer, producer, and director in the film and television industry. Uh, his family lived at various times in Utah, Georgia, and California, and he's worked for nine years as a producer in the media de department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Robert's efforts in, in church public affairs and defending the faith led him to write a book about his faith called Really Inside Mormonism, Confessions of a Mere Latter-day Christian. Uh, he was also a member of the Board of Directors of the Book of Mormon Archaeological Forum, and he was on the staff of the Book of Mormon Central. And he wrote a second version of that same book uh, before called the, A Case for Latter-day Christianity. Robert, welcome. So good to have you. Thank you, Guy. It's a great privilege and, and, and honor to, to be here with you. Yeah, thank you, Robert. And uh, I really love that background. Those mountains are just uh, absolutely gorgeous. So That's actually the view from my front door. Fantastic. What a, what a view. So uh, why don't you tell us your backstory on how you got involved in the Shroud of Turin? Well, in uh, night, let's see, I, I went to work for a company called Schick Sun Classic Pictures in Salt Lake City. Uh, in, uh, let's see, it was the late 70s, around 1977 or so, 70, early 78, perhaps. And I was the head of the trailer department there. I wrote and produced the trailers and TV spots uh, for the movies they were producing. They had done one called In Search of Noah's Ark that had been quite successful. And uh, they, they did another number of films. Uh, they also did a... Uh, TV series for NBC called uh, the, the Grizzly Adams TV series that was quite popular and another one called um, The uh, uh, Greatest Heroes of the Bible. And uh, after doing uh, 30 second TV spots for a while, I, I wanted to do something a little more substantial. And so I proposed a film which they uh, decided to produce called uh, In Search of Historic Jesus. And uh, I had uh, been reading a book called uh, The Passover Plot, which challenged some of the uh, uh, elements of the Christian faith, including the resurrection of Christ. And as a Latter-day Saint and as a Christian, I uh, was a little bit upset by that. And I thought, well, what, what can I do? 
Well, uh, so the premise that I wrote was for the person who uh, does not accept the Bible as a historical document, what other evidences can we find out there for there, the fact that there even was a person named Jesus and anything about his life? And uh, one of the uh, things that came up in the writing of the screenplay for this uh, feature-length documentary, which uh, did, was fair, quite successful for an independent film in theaters, and later it aired on NBC for a couple of times, and it was in syndication and distribution throughout the world. And uh, the uh, one of the things that uh, came up in the discussion was the Shroud of Turin. Now, I, at that time, was not that familiar with it, but uh, as I began to do some research, of course, this is pre-internet days, so uh, it wasn't quite as easy to find things and research things then as it is now. But uh, I, I became fascinated with it, and uh, I was able, uh, in the process of shooting the, video, uh, the film for the, for the motion picture, um, I interviewed a number of uh, the people who had been researching it and uh, the scientists who had uh, done tests on it and things like that. And it was, it was a wonderful experience. I really enjoyed it. And it ended up in October of 1978, there was a, a public exhibition of the Shroud in Turin, Italy. It was the first time it had been shown public to the public since 1935. It was a six-week exhibition, and uh, I had to scramble to uh, get my uh, passport and visas and, and put, every, put all the stuff together. But I was able to go there and film the Shroud uh, along with some of the uh, – they were having a, simultaneously a conference there in Turin of scientists presenting papers on various aspects of the research, and I filmed some of those as well. But it was a great experience, and uh, yeah, so I it, enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. So, when did that uh, that movie come out, and what was the title again? The movie came out in, uh, I think, the uh, either late '79 or early 1980, and was in theaters for a while. And then, like I say, it was shown on NBC in 1980. Mm -hmm. and, uh, recently, I I had a. a copy that I put up on YouTube so that if anyone wants to see that movie, it's, uh, it's up on YouTube now and uh, doesn't cost anything. They can watch the entire film. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, and I'm sorry, and what was the, uh, the title again? Oh, it's called In Search of Historic Jesus. Oh, yeah, that's right. In Search of Historic Jesus. Wow. You know, it's so funny. The, uh, I'm an amateur historian uh, as I've gotten into the shroud. And, uh, and so there's been, you know, so much that I've learned about history. So uh, I definitely want to look at that. I think I, uh, when we first started talking, I, I was able to look at the first uh, couple of minutes of it. And I got to remember now to, to go back and, re and, and review the whole thing. So you were now in, uh, in, uh, in Italy and I remember you had a very, well, actually just going over to Italy and being able to get to see the shroud and take pictures of the shroud. Uh, you had some very interesting stories uh, surrounding that. Tell us about that. Well, things went well for the first uh, day or two. Well, no, 
when I arrived, because I uh, had been uh, scrambling to at the last minute to make this trip, I, I had thought we'd be able to find some stock footage of the slot of the shroud that we could use in the script, in the in screen, in the, in the film. And that's how I had planned to go about it. And then as I started looking into it, I saw that there wasn't any. I thought, well, if we're going to have any film of this, we, I'm going to have to go get it. And so I convinced my uh, uh, superiors there at Sun Classic Pictures to uh, pay for the trip. And uh, I rented a, rented a 16 millimeter camera there in, uh, in Salt Lake and uh, took off. But in the process, I did not learn, I didn't know that uh, in order to take professional motion picture equipment into a country like that, you have to have certain documentation, which I did not have. So when I landed in Milan, I had to uh, uh, get a uh, cash bond that I had to put up so that I wouldn't uh, sell the camera on the black market or something like that. And uh, so getting that from a bank and then driving across uh, Milan in the middle of the night in a taxi cab with, you know, $20,000 worth of lira in my underpants <laughs> was, was uh, an interesting uh, experience. And then uh, I, I filmed uh, the first day of materials uh, at the conference and uh, some, some miscellaneous shots around the city. And I went into a shop to uh, purchase uh, some uh, connectors or converters so that I could recharge my batteries using the current that they, electric current they had there in Italy. And while I was in there, the camera was stolen out of the vehicle. <laughs> and so it was, uh, it was a harrowing, I mean, here I was a one man camera, one, you know, one man band camera crew, uh, thousands of miles from home. I had not yet filmed the shroud. And so I was in a very bad situation and I, I just have to chalk it up to the power of prayer because I, that night I, I had called the embassy there in uh, Turin. I, I took the train from Milan to Turin. And uh, when I was there, I, I called the embassy and told them, well, I, I had to leave a message. Nobody was there on their uh, answering machine. Uh, and then uh, I, uh, boy, that night I prayed like I'd never prayed before. I was in a bad, <laughs> bad position there, you know. But the next morning, the miracle happened. I got a call back from uh, uh, the uh, someone had checked the answering machine. They were all on holiday up in the Alps. And uh, he called me back and said, uh, well, maybe there's something we can do to at least get you a camera so you can get the footage that you need. And so I, uh, he, he had a contact uh, at the uh, local television station there in Turin. It was with the Italian television network. And uh gave me a person to call. And also the uh, fellow who was helping me and doing translating and driving and assisting me, his name was Giuseppe Pasta. Very, we've become really good friends over the years. We went through a lot together, <laughs> but he had a, a cousin who was married to a guy who uh, also worked there. And so bottom line, we were able to go into the, now that, keep in mind, this was like the Saturday of the last 
this was the last day of this six week exhibition. So this is the last opportunity. And like I say, the previously it would have been uh, 1935 would have been the uh, previous uh, exhibition. So they don't bring it out every day. And so uh, we walked into the equipment room there in Turin and uh, the guy said, uh, what do you need? And so I said, well, I need this and this and this. And he said, fine, bring it back when you're done. And we shook hands and that was that, you know, I was able to load up the magazines and, and get there. And, and when I got to the Cathedral of uh, St. John the Baptist, where the shroud was being uh, uh, displayed, uh, another thing I had not been able to get done uh, prior to the trip because of the haste involved was to get uh, press credentials. And there were uh, people from uh, television networks and, and press from all over the world uh, for the closing ceremony of this six-week exhibition of the Shroud. And uh, so fortunately, uh, again, saying a prayer, I was able to uh, kind of uh, shimmy up next to the guy from CBS who was very kind and said, just, you know, you'll be part of my crew, whatever. So when they opened the side doors of the cathedral so the press could go in and set up cameras to do the filming of this closing ceremony, uh, the uh, camaraderie of the international press was very good back then. And they they made a little space for me for my tripod and we I was able to get the shot that I needed. And uh, what had been, you know, the, the worst of times turned out to be the best of times. I, I you know, I, I credit my Heavenly Father for making possible those miracles that I was able to get the footage I needed. It's amazing the, uh, the power of prayer. So what was the uh, closing ceremony like? Was there a, a, a real ceremony or was it uh, more of a press thing or what was that like? No, there were thousands of people there. It's kind of like, you know, the, the wedding at uh, Westminster Cathedral of Princess Diana and Charles. <laughs> it was packed. And, of course, all of the, uh, the uh, Catholic priests in their regalia and, and uh, vestments and everything were, you know, doing their thing. And the, the shroud was in a uh, glass, bulletproof glass case of, uh, a long uh, case um, with inert gases in it and low light uh, to keep it from fading. And uh, it was down at the end of the, the chapel in the cathedral. And there was a walkway about 10 feet in front of it where you could go and, and get a view of it and that people would, would go and do that. And so I was able to go and set up my camera and get some pretty good shots of it. Yeah, so uh, how did you handle the low light, though? It would seem like that would have been a, a challenge for you. Well, it was, uh, particularly since the camera that had been stolen had an internal light meter mm. uh, built in, which I was going to use to determine the exposure. And I talked to somebody when I, when I got this other camera, it did not have that feature, and I didn't have another light meter. And, and so basically they said, just open the camera wide open the lens and uh, shoot the footage and then shoot another 50 feet at the end uh, that you can uh, use as a test strip. Mm. So I did that and, and uh, I sent it to the lab and I said, you know, cut off that, that 50 feet at the end and run it through your 
machine. And back in those days, you could push the film. You, you, you did a little change up to the chemicals and you could push it and to get more uh, ability of the film. Mm. And so I pushed it two stops and hoped for the best. And fortunately, the test came out great. So we, uh, we developed the rest of the film and I was able to get good footage. So were you uh, uh, stationary then when you were taking it or were you able to walk around or how did, uh, how did all that work? Well, it was, it was on, it was on a, the camera was on a tripod and because mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to get, you know, good steady footage of it. So you were, but so then uh, your pictures uh, and, and video that you or yeah, video that you had taken then was from one angle of the whole thing or uh, did you pan across or? Yeah, the first first position was during the closing ceremonies and I got, you know, like a wide shot of the ceremonies. And then I moved up to that little rampway that went across in front of it and set up. And then I was able to pan across the mm. image of the shroud and zoom in and, you know, get various, various shots. But it was all from one angle. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. And um, uh, so uh, I think you said it was uh, it, the 1978 exhibition, and this was uh, a six week long exhibition. Now, uh, was this also connected with the uh, the STIRP investigations? Because I think they were at the beginning of that uh, exhibition. Is that right? Yeah, that, that the STIRP investigation uh, was took place at the pretty much the same time. Yeah, that's when they did their analysis. Yeah, 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 exactly. So then, uh, well, fascinating. So you're, uh, so then it's kind of funny. So you said 1935, and uh, and there were some photography done then, and of course, then going back to uh, uh, 1898, which was Secundo Pia, which was the first uh, photo. Right. And uh, you know, it's so funny when you were talking about low light. The uh, Secundo Pia story is also pretty fascinating. So he had. Uh, you know, you had 16 millimeter film, his plates were 30 centimeters, I think by 50 centimeters. And his, um, and he had electric lamps going. And uh, he had sunlight coming in into the room. And uh, the electric lamps, which was like the first time that anybody had used electric lamps for photography, it's, it's hard to believe that all this technology was coming together. And he, as I recall, he had something like a 12 minute to a 15 minute exposure to be able to get his, uh, you know, to get that image. Could very well be because in those early days of photographers, they had to have some very long exposure times. The, the chemicals or the, the uh, emulsion that they had on the film was not nearly as, as sensitive as, uh, as what we have now. And uh, in, in our movie, In Search of Historic Jesus, we actually filmed a reenactment of Segundo Pia uh, making his uh, his uh, photo image of the shroud, and we we showed his uh, uh, amazement when he holds up this this large negative that he had that he had made to the light, and he realizes that he what he's seeing on this negative was a positive image, <laughs> that the image on the shroud itself is a negative image. Yeah, yeah, that is just so fascinating, and. Um... And that that in and of itself is also one of the the things that uh, you know when you when you talk to a forger, how could someone have painted something in the negative when in reality I don't think the concept of a negative had ever even been thought of. Uh, you know that really only came about with uh, with photography. 
Right. The documented history of the shroud that we know of for certain begins, what, around 13... 1350 or so. Yeah, 1356 or whenever, when it was... Yep. When the, uh, who was it? Uh, De Ar Bishop D'Arcis, who was at the cathedral down the road from from where the shroud was being displayed, complained to the Pope that uh, they had this fake shroud there. And so that was kind of the first record of it. So we know where it's been since that time. And so uh, the, uh, if there was no, in 13, in 1350s, they didn't, they'd never had, didn't know anything about photography. So there was, there's, like you say, the, the concept of a negative was, was something beyond their, their comprehension. So how how could somebody, you know, create that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, not to go off on a tangent here, but uh, and also to think about in the 1350s, how could they have even thought of putting a 3D, an image, a 2D image that has 3D qualities to it uh, back in the 1350s or or whenever, but but you know before that, as it relates to whether it was a you know a forgery from that time, as as Bishop Darcy uh, claimed, or whether it was uh, you know real as the uh, that Leary uh, de Deacons claimed. Yeah. Well, one of the things when you talk about 3D versus 2D. And, and when I went to Turin and one of the papers that was being presented in that conference had to do with people who had done scans and whatever and converted that 2D image on the shroud into a 3D representation because they found that the, the data that they needed was encoded into that to do the 3D image. But uh, one of the uh, alternate... Uh, proposals as to how the shroud might have been created was that someone had uh, through with uh, brass or iron or something had had created a statue of a crucified man that they could then put a fire inside of it and heat it up so that when they put the linen over it it would create this singeing effect mm. to create the image but to do that they would have had to wrap the uh, the cloth around the face. And if they had done that, then when it was put back into two in a flat, it would be distorted, which is not the case with the face on the shroud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not to mention the fact that, uh, well, there's a whole bunch of things that go on with that singeing. Let's, uh, let's maybe move on to uh, another topic. And uh, that is, uh, you mentioned that you uh, went to visit a, a church in Glastonbury, England. Tell us about that and tell us why that is uh, significant as it relates to the shroud. Well, specifically, uh, it, uh, initially, it didn't re relate to the shroud at first because we had gone there. Like I say, when we talk about the historical Jesus, there's a lot of things. For example, um, if you look at the Jerusalem hymn, which is like uh, for us in America, you know, God bless America is sort of like a second or not God bless America, but America the beautiful, sort of like a second national anthem. Well, after God saved the king or whatever, or queen, the, the second national anthem for Great Britain is what they call the Jerusalem hymn. And in it, it in that hymn, the lyrics say, did not our Lord walk upon the green hills of England? 
And so we had explored these legends that Joseph of Arimathea, who after the death of Joseph, Mary's husband and stepfather of Jesus, uh, uh, Joseph of Arimathea had sort of become like a godfather to, to the boy Jesus. And he was known as a metal merchant and uh, was known to have traveled throughout the Roman Empire to the British Isles in, in search of lead and tin. Uh, the, the mines in Cornwall were a major source of tin. And uh, so in the process, it is the, according to legend, he took the boy Jesus with him. And we had heard that uh, in the uh, southern part of England, I think there's a little town of Somerset, that there was a, a little church there where there's a tapestry on the wall that depicted Joseph of Arimathea and the boy Jesus landing on the coast of England. And so we went to that church and we filmed that. And then we found on the other wall, there was a, uh, a, a wooden panel with the face of uh, Jesus on that. Now that, that wooden panel had been discovered in 1951. It had been a door on a coal bin <laughs> in a house somewhere. And it had this picture of Jesus on the face of it. Now, when you look at that image, the, the image of the face of Jesus is depicted there is very similar to what we find on the shroud. And of course, the, as, as we study the, the uh, the history of many things in the, in the history of the shroud, there are certain uh, distinctive elements in, in that particular rendition of, of the face of Jesus. Mm. But it was, yeah. it was neat that we found that, and that, of course, was the connection to the shroud, is that, uh, that image that we found. Yeah, that's interesting, and, uh, and that it uh, is in England, uh, and which means that you know, either there was a uh, a copy of the shroud that was made or something, but somehow it would have had to have gotten up there. Do you re do you recall what the year of that, uh, the age of that that image was? I don't know that it was dated. Uh, like mm. I say, it was it was discovered and and put on in in 1951, but obviously it dates back. It it was allegedly it came from a house that had actually been a crusader safe house mm. of sorts. And of course the uh, the uh, the Knights Templar, uh, which you know came about during the Crusades. I figured in the Crusades uh, were known to have uh, had a connection to the shroud. Uh, Geoffrey de Charnay, who originally had given it to the cathedral in Luray, was a member of the Templar. He and uh, uh, Dim I can't remember his first name, Demolay, were burned at the stake in uh, Friday the 13th of uh, of I think it was 1372, I could be mistaken. But that's why Friday the 13th is considered an unlucky day because <laughs> the, uh, uh, the Knights Templar had fallen out of favor with uh, the, the king and the church and a campaign of eradication. was, And so on the Friday the 13th of, Oct of October, of that 1372, simultaneously across Europe, uh, 
crusaders were rounded up and burned at the stake. Mm. But they were one of the uh, allegations made against them was that they had a face of Christ that they were using as sort of an idol and that in their secret ceremonies, they were, uh, uh, you know, worshiping this idol of the face of Christ, which had come from, um, in, in probability, the shroud. Uh, mm. Either that or the Mandelian, which was a copy of that image um, that came from, uh, was it uh, Constantinople or somewhere? Yeah, it, it it's uh it's all up in the air the uh, uh the shroud uh during the fourth crusade was uh in 1204 1203 was uh most likely have seen uh robert de clary uh in constantinople and then there was the mandelian and the image of edessa which was then more on the eastern uh side of things which uh, some people think that the image of edessa was the shroud I personally think that just like you kind of mentioned is that that was a copy of the shroud. And, um, and then, so it'd be interesting to see, I'd love to see a picture of that and I'll have to see if I can find one of that uh, church that you're talking about and uh, to see if it resembles more the, the, the image of Edessa or the, uh, the shroud. So the shroud itself. Well, in the speculative history of the shroud, which comes before that first, uh, letter mm. to the Pope in the 1350s, uh, many people believe that, uh, that that's how the shroud got from the Middle East to uh, France, that it, was, uh, that it was brought there by the Crusaders. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, uh, and I go back and forth. I've got, uh, there's definitely two uh, major theories about that. And and then there's little variants to each one of those theories as to exactly how it it uh, it got from Constantinople to uh, up to uh, France and then over to Geoffrey de Charny and then to Lee Ray and then where it was finally written about in a in an official way by uh, Bishop Darcisse and others as it started to be displayed and and exhibited so you know the the rest of the world could see it as opposed to just the the nobility and the uh, uh, you know and the and the, and the emperor. So um, yeah, very fascinating. Well, I'm going to do some research on that. I look forward to finding out more about that. Now, uh, one of the questions though is uh, uh, so how does a a Latter Day Saint look at the shroud? Is there a difference? Is it similar? How does the how does all that come together for the Latter Day Saints? Well, of course, the shroud as a relic is. Uh... Um, primarily in, you know, in the past, it's been a focus for the, uh, the Catholic Church as a, as a, a Catholic relic. And uh, quite frankly, most Latter-day Saints are not that familiar with the Shroud. And that's one of the reasons why I uh, have, you know, shared what I've learned with others. Because to me, it, it's an interesting thing. It, uh, it because of the the way it is proposed that the image got on the cloth, which was some sort of a singeing that uh, resulted from, according to the scientists who've discovered it, and Ray Rogers at Los Alamos Scientific uh, Laboratory and Jeffrey Ash and some others have, have speculated that it came from a very intense 
but very brief uh, burst of uh, intense light or radiation or something that singed the cloth. And uh, when I did the interview with Jeffrey Ash over in England, uh, in his sort of uh, wry British voice, he said, uh, but that's not the sort of thing that normally happens to a dead body. Now, does it? <laughs> and of course, it doesn't. But if you're a Christian and you believe in the resurrection of Christ, then it's, it's, uh, it's somewhat speculative, but at the same time, uh, logical that some sort of, of energy would be needed to reanimate the body of Christ as he was lying dead in the tomb to, to bring about the resurrection. And so to me, the shroud has the potential of being a, a, a you know, a, a, a very credible scientific piece of evidence for the resurrection of Christ, which then of course uh, is, is a testament to his divinity as our Lord and Savior, not just a, a man. And so that to me is a very uh, important uh, uh, relic because it, it has the potential of being a way of uh, explaining to the world that, uh, that my Lord and Savior is God, is resurrected, you know. And there's another aspect of it too. It's, it, the shroud is a physical object somehow its, its existence has to be explained. And you either take the story that comes with it of how it came to be, or you have to come up with a, some other more plausible explanation somewhere. Now, in our faith, in addition to the Bible, uh, we have a, a work of scripture we call the Book of Mormon. And we believe that uh, it was translated from a set of, of metal golden plates that an angel brought to the prophet Joseph Smith uh, in 1820, uh, let's say 18, 1829. And that he was get through the gift and power of God was able to translate those into uh, this record of a group of Israelites who came from Jerusalem 600 BC lived in America, and most importantly, that after his resurrection, Jesus Christ came and visited these people who were also of the house of Israel. And Jesus, when he was, you know, in the New Testament, he says, uh, I'm going after, he says, I'm going to visit my other sheep, and they will hear my voice, who are also of the tribe of, of the house of Israel. And we believe that that was him saying he was going to come here to the Americas. Well, the Book of Mormon is 530-something pages of a document that somehow it's, it's existent, like the Shroud, its existence has to be explained somehow. And you either have to take the story that comes with it, sometimes you have to take it on faith, or you have to come up with a more plausible explanation for its existence. And after 200 years or so, no one's been able to come up with that. Just like with the shroud, no one's been able to come up with a more plausible uh, explanation for this physical object that has to be explained somehow. 
So that's that's kind of been the reason, one of the reasons that it's been really important for me. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And uh, uh, and and also the the argumentation, uh, and you know, definitely understand there are differences and there are similarities between uh, you know the various uh, religions, uh, including the Church of the Latter Day Saints. So uh, yeah, thank you for that. And, uh, you know, definitely appreciate it. Now, you said you also worked with a uh, gentleman called William Phipps, and he had an interesting take on whether Jesus was potentially married or not. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, while I was doing the, uh, the research of, uh, for the movie In Search of Historic Jesus, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the things that, that, that came out was I, I found this book called Was Jesus Married by a Presbyterian pastor back in West Virginia named William Phipps. And uh, it fascinated me. I, I wanted to put things into the film that would be unique and different and, uh, you know, uh, give people a reason to come and, and attend and see the movie. And, and that would certainly be uh, a bit of controversy, as it were, uh, and, and, a, and, a, and a bit of interest. And there are, you know, in my own faith, there are many people who believe that Jesus was married. But it was nice to see uh, uh, the reasoning behind his uh, and, and his answer to the question, the title, was Jesus married? Was he believed that he was? And so we flew uh, Pastor Phipps out to Salt Lake and we filmed an interview with him in a Presbyterian church in Salt Lake. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the producers did not agree with my take on it, and it, that did not end up in the final film. But it was very fascinating, and one he had some very, what I thought were very uh, plausible reasons to believe that Jesus was married. Uh, the only reason that, uh, that people can give to say he was not married uh, is that it's not mentioned in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's no mention either way. But the point that he brings out is that the things that we read about people in the Bible are usually the things that were unusual. And he uses the example of John the Baptist, who, as we know, uh, you know, wore sackcloth and, and, uh, and ate honey and locusts. How do we know that? Well, the Bible says that. Does the Bible say that much about what other people ate or what they wore? Well, not a whole lot. So it was the unusual thing. Now, in, in, the, in the, the culture, the Jewish culture that, that Jesus lived in as a 30-year-old man, for him not to be married, for him, for him to be a single man, to be a teacher, a rabbi, would be against the Jewish uh, customs and traditions and Jewish law. And so of all the things that the scribes and the Pharisees brought up against him, like, you know, eating grain on the Sabbath or healing someone on the Sabbath or this, that, and the other, they were very quick to point out anytime he was violating the Jewish law, or at least, the, you know, I thought they was. And, uh, and nobody ever mentioned, you know, how can this, uh, you know, rabbi, you know, be going around teaching people without a wife? You know? <laughs> and we know that uh, there were uh, Mary Magdalene and uh, Mary and Martha, the sisters, uh, brothers, sisters of Lazarus and others, uh, his mother and others, women who traveled with him and the apostles. 
in in uh, the TV series The Chosen, we see a lot of that, you know, and and there that would raise some eyebrows in in, the, in that culture if there were not uh, a uh, familial connection there. Mm. And he gave a lot of reasons, you know, why he felt that that Jesus was married, and uh, and I to me that's that's fascinating to. Uh, to think about and to, I mean, obviously we don't know for sure, but there are reasons to believe that perhaps he was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, and I I haven't uh, thought about it in a while, but I think um, uh, in the Bible, uh, even for the apostles, I think they mentioned that uh, something about Peter's mother-in-law, which would then you would infer that he was, he was married and um, and then there's it's not certain whether Paul was married and others uh, that may or may not have been married as well. And if Peter's mother-in-law had not gotten sick and Jesus went to heal her, <laughs> we would have no knowledge that any of the apostles were married because the you know it was a normal thing and the Bible did not really uh, chronicle the normal things. It was the unusual thing. Yeah, so yeah. It, that, that's an, another, for me, another reason to believe that uh, Jesus and probably the other apostles were married as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, uh, it's an interesting question, you know, and it's, the fun part about it is that um, at least with the, with the evidence that's available today, it's, uh, there's, there's no real proof one way or the other. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and so if it isn't mentioned in the Bible, to your point, then that doesn't, ne- doesn't necessarily mean that it didn't happen. It doesn't necessarily mean that it did, but it, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it didn't. And so then there's uh, interesting questions that uh, might come up on both sides. Um, anything else you want to talk about before we uh, close? Well, um, we, we've already been over it a little bit, but uh, like I say, to me, um, religion and Christianity in particular in, in the world today comes under a lot of, uh, of uh, uh, ridiculing and uh, they make jokes and this and that and the other. And uh, the idea that Jesus was a real person and the idea that he um, lived well and and died and was resurrected that is the the cornerstone of our faith Mm. and uh if i were to uh, let me go back to the very beginning because when i first uh came up with the idea for this film like i say i was i was concerned about some of the attacks if you will uh on the the christian on the life of christ and everything and so as I was thinking, uh, what, could, uh, what could I do to help with this situation? Well, like I had said before, a key uh, portion of a book that I consider scripture, the Book of Mormon, is the account of uh, Jesus after his resurrection coming down from the sky to the people in the Americas here. And he spent time with them, just as he did in, in, uh, in, in the land of Israel, in Palestine, in Bible lands. Uh, they, they, according to him, they were his other sheep. 
And after that time, he actually said that he was going to leave and go to visit even more sheep on the Isles of the Sea and others. And to me, uh, and there have been in the chronicles of a lot of the conquistadors and, and early people that wherever they went, they found that there was legends of a white and bearded God who had come and visited the different tribes, the different peoples throughout the Americas. There was a book uh, published in the 60s called He Walked the Americas, where someone had collected all of these stories, these legends of the white and bearded God. He was known as Quetzalcoatl, uh, among some, Kulkulkan, Viracucha. And so the account of Jesus visiting these people after his resurrection in the Americas, to me, that is something that people need to know about. And they may not believe it, but at least they need to know that this is a possibility. And so um, that was one of the things that I wanted to bring out in this movie as, as, as one of the evidences for that Jesus was a historical pe person. And not only that, but that he was resurrected, that he was, that he is our Lord and Savior. And so uh, to me, that was a, a really important thing that I wanted to get across in the movie. Now, in the final, you know, 90 minute film, there's only about three or four minutes about Jesus visiting the Americas, but it is something that's there. And I was able to get that across. And that, along with the Shroud of Turin, I think these are very uh, powerful evidences to uh, the divinity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's, that's why I, that's what I feel I need to do to, to use the talents and the abilities that God has given me to share mm -hmm. with others. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the uh, same thing with me, uh, writing my book is, uh, was to, um, uh, you know, take the talents that I've got and uh, that he and, and what he's given me and uh, to be able to somehow, some way to help the, uh, you know, bring others to, uh, to Christ. And um, I mentioned as well, uh, when I do talks about my book and, and then, of course, the shroud and what have you, I always say my one goal is to bring just one person to, uh, to Jesus. And yeah. if I can do that, then I will be very successful. Now, obviously, I want to bring 10, 100, 1,000 or whatever, yeah. but uh, just one is my, uh, is my mission. So, uh, uh, so, uh, so, yes, definitely understand where you're coming from. Well, with that, uh, Robert, uh, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate it and really appreciate your, uh, the, your telling the story. I found that fascinating. It does show the power of prayer. I can just imagine how much praying you did that that night. <laughs> the, the, what came to mind was the line from uh, 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 the Tale of Two Cities. Was that Dickens uh, wrote? Anyway, yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. Said it was the it was the worst best of times. It was the worst of times. Yep, exactly. And, you know, I I went down into the depths that night, not knowing how I was going to to fulfill <laughs> my my mission that was there. But uh, as the Lord always does, yep, yep. He, came, he came through for me, and I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, he definitely did that, that uh, leaving that voicemail and then how that then 
just miraculously move forward. So you had a camera and you, you were there with the, uh, with the crew and, and being able to walk in without a, without a badge. So, uh, well, very good. So, uh, now you had a, uh, your latest book, um, uh, uh, give me the name and where can uh, potentially people find out more about it and, and potentially purchase it? Well, for those who don't understand, I mean, a lot of people out there don't believe that Latter-day Saints are Christians. And, and that's been a, you know, a big thing. So my book is called A Case for Latter-day Christianity. It Basically, the premise is I'm a Latter-day Saint or Mormon, if you want to call it, and I'm also a Christian. And if you don't know understand how that works, if you're interested, here are my reasons. And it's available either in print or ebook on uh, Amazon.com and Barnes and Noble. And uh, uh, if anybody wants to contact me directly, I'll uh, I'll give you the PDF version. I don't mind giving it. I, I didn't write it to make money. So <laughs> exactly, exactly. So a case for Latter Day Christianity by Robert Starling. Exactly. Fantastic. Well, uh, Robert, thank you so much. You can oh, sorry, put my go ahead. email address in your in your uh, uh, blog if you like, so that people can contact me. Sure, I, uh, we can do that. That's uh, that can be dangerous. You never know. So, uh, um, you know, be glad not, to do that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm <laughs> willing to. You look. You look at what the early Christians went through and everything, but oh. you know, for their testimony. Yeah, well, and you look at what Jesus can, went through, the suffering yeah. and the pain and everything that is uh, reflected on that cloth is, it is just, uh, it's, it is incredible what, what, man, what man can do to another man, and in this case, what man can do to the Son of God, it's, uh, it is amazing, so uh, yeah, well, with that, let me, uh, let me close here, but again, thank you so much, and for the audience, please stay tuned for many other videos in this series of the backstory on the Shroud of Turin. Please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up with your email address, but also sign up for more episodes. Robert, thank you so much. This has been uh, very informative. Thank you for letting me come. I've certainly enjoyed it. Thank you.